Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. We'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the grisly case of serial killer Dennis Nilsson. How have you been? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, I have a, a gripe. Oh, God. Danny's weekly whinge. Yep. Go. Oh, oh wait. Here we go. Here we go. Danny's weekly whinge. <laughs> go for it. People need to stop saying they're excited for spooky season. It's it's more than a weekly whinge. It's a daily whinge for me. It's a daily whinge for you, but you are, are not complaining to the right person I know, I, I, I know. I, i'm totally in disagreement you with know, you i have nobody in my life apart from my sister yes and my mum mm-hmm. who get it and i don't understand how i've surrounded myself with such autumnal wintry people it's madness to me well you see i would have to say that i'm probably your most summery friend you definitely are because i do fucking love summer you're just excited about life yes yeah um but i must i'm I, i'm gonna have to say this i'm so fucking hot at the minute and the days feel like they're rolling into one another because it's so light that i am excited for a bit of transition and a bit of coolerness all right see i just who wants it like in england it gets dark at half past three. Yeah, in, don't like, like that. That's shit. As that soon as shit. it gets dark after like before seven o'clock, to be honest, mm-hmm. I need light time. <laughs> I need it more than I need the dark. I'm solar powered. I need it. I, like, I just want to dissolve. No, I completely agree. But sometimes this heat is too much. It's just all I, like, I, I, I don't like working in everything's it. Everything's pumpkin spiced and orange and like, you know, everything's shaped like pumpkins. And I'm like, you can eat pumpkins all year round. Like they're not just an autumn thing. Like I love a pumpkin. Delicious. I have a feeling that most of our got bats on. Most of our listeners are probably gonna be like, shut up, Danny. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Come at me. But you'll find me at the beach living my fucking best life right in like gloriously tanned in summer if, if 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 you're listening right now and you can you're not driving please dm us if you agree with danny just ju- not That's the poll that is the poll team summer just just dm team summer yeah i'm not trying to alienate you i'm just i feel I'm well aware that i'm outnumbered to be fair that you just need a bit of backup because your english people can't handle the heat it's probably the case, to be fair. Put it out there. I've said it. I've said it. Anyway, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Good. I mean, I, 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 I have been thinking of Halloween only for my shop, though. Well, that's understandable because I have to be ahead of the game when you're doing that stuff, exactly. which I've come to learn. I mean, if anything, are you behind? Should you be doing Christmas? Ah, oh, I've already thought of Christmas. Well, of course, you have. I've got two designs in mind. Not self, not plugging my shop here. I kind of have. No, I'm not. I'm not. Helen but has a shop. Helen has a shop. It's great. Um, but only because of that. But other than that, yeah, I'm good. I've I'm enjoying wearing um shirts. <laughs> I'm Helen and I like shirts. <laughs> uh, well, I've been really fucking busy. Like right. I'm just, I'm just 
the plates are spinning. There's a lot of them. And I feel like, you know, when you feel like, oh, I'm not busy, but I'm also really busy at the same time. I think it's because I do little bits of everything all the time. I don't like, how can I put it? In theory, you do have like 17 jobs. Yes. That's a lot of jobs. I know. And I'm, I'm kind of going for a phase at the minute where I feel like I'm doing everything but getting nothing done. And it's kind uh, of annoying. hate that. But um, I'm trying to thrive off it. You are. You're killing it, man. Oh, I believe in you. Thanks, mate. I love you. I love you too. Shall we hold hands? <laughs> One, two, but you're so far you're away. You're so far away. <laughs> oh, we can't reach. But hang on, hang on. Come, come oh here. God. I touched you. Oh, uh, we're touching fingertips. Oh, yes. <laughs> Get a room. There we go. Um, we did this at the end of the last season and I people really got involved with it. What? And that everybody touched fingers at the same time. Oh, did they? And it was lovely. Oh, everyone had the old um, touching fingers. So let's hand do that to hand. Clip, clip. Hand to hand. Clip, clip. Hand to foot. I don't know what you're doing. It's a baby doll advert from the old days okay oh my god i remember <laughs> i just <laughs> love that magnets in her feet and her bleep, bleep. <laughs> oh, oh my god when i have dementia which i definitely will i know it's not a very nice thing to joke about but everybody in my family got it so it's definitely coming my way and um, home going bleep, bleep. yeah bleep, bleep. <laughs> right and on that note shall we talk about murder yes let's do it okay so this one is really grim meaty Bit Ooh. meaty and stinky. Mm. Oh mm. no! Mm-hmm. Is that a- you finished eating? So it's fine. Okay. Um, so if anyone else is eating their lunch, I suggest if you are squeamish to that kind of stuff. I'm not one of them people, by the way. That oh, sorry, you're eating. I won't talk about it. I'm like, go ahead, talk about rotting flesh. I don't care. Do you know what, me too. I'm Give a shit. Time. I think it's only if somebody was really talking about something slimy that I would. Mm, nah, Depends don't associate it. I'm just like, this is my food. You're talking, telling a story. They are not involved with one another. Anyway, but this is pretty gory, and I know some people are a bit squeamish, so just beware. It's a cold January evening in London in 1983. 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair has recently arrived in London, coming all the way from Scotland with no return ticket. Stephen's a bit of a troubled soul. He's been in and out of troubles ever since he was a lad, and he recently has been arrested after stealing from a hotel. Tonight, though, Stephen's out on the town looking for some company. It's not long before Stephen is chatted up by a tall man in big glasses. The man is pretty good looking and seems easy enough to talk to, and after a while, they decide to head on to another location for drinks. One thing turns into another... And then they head back to the man's flat in North London. Once inside the flat, Stephen is plied with more booze and drugs and soon passes out. Stephen is not seen alive again. A couple of weeks later, on February 8th, a plumber arrives at a flat in Cranley Gardens, North London, to take a look at some blocked drains. Neighbours have been complaining about the blockage and some weird smells coming from the drain cover by the side of the house. As the plumber uncovers the drain, he knows immediately that something isn't right. And they found what looked like bits of flesh. Nilsson suggested that it could be somebody had flushed their 
Kentucky Fried Chicken out or something like that, and that would be the explanation for little bones and flesh. The plumber pulls out large pieces of flesh and bones. It could only be one thing. Not a KFC. What's that man on about? He said it is. It's human. He would get rid of the bones and other bits of the organs by flushing them down the loo. It sounds in many ways like a very dark horror film. And indeed it was. Police arrive at the scene and trace the pipes back to the top floor flat of 27-year-old Dennis Nilsson. And as they go inside, it's impossible not to know something is wrong. And you could smell immediately the um, decomposing flesh. And I just pushed my face a little bit nearer to his and said, don't mess about, where's the rest of the body? And he said, OK, it's in plastic bags in the front bedroom. So I drove the car back, popped the question to Nielsen, are we talking here about one body or two? And Nielsen said, neither. He said, I think it's 15 or 16. Oh, my God! Dennis Nilsson had killed dozens of young men across two flats and had gotten away with it until now. So let's go back to the start. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23rd, 1945, in Fraserburgh, Scotland. Scotland. It's a small fishing town with very traditional Christian views and families tracing back generations. After World War II, the island was also home to many Polish and Norwegian immigrants, including Dennis's father. But his father wasn't around for long. Forensic psychologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley knows more. His father was was largely absent. He grew up with his his mother and his siblings and his grandparents and, and his family reformed and his mother remarried. So he had a lot of disruption, he had a lot of chaos. But lots of children have that. They do. They do. We know this. We know this from experience. According to Dennis, his dad spent most of his time on other work and had little time for family. And after his parents split up, Dennis and his two siblings spent the majority of his childhood living in the nearby village of Strichen. Dennis told author Brian Masters that even as a kid, he knew he didn't fit in with the rest of his family. He was isolated from an early age. And the isolation found solace in representations of people who weren't alive, like pictures in a storybook. He'd cut the picture out and take it home. That's what he liked, because that picture couldn't argue with him. It couldn't say no to him. He was in control of his little picture. That was his controlled environment, I suppose, wasn't it? It is a bit odd. It's a bit bit odd. odd. Dennis also really didn't get along with his mother, claiming that she handled him like an un- unpleasant object. What an what a kind Interesting. of horrible thing to way hmm. to describe oneself. Unpleasant object. Yeah. Wow. Here's Liz. His mother has actually talked about the way that she would cuddle and have, you know, physical warmth with her other children, but she felt repelled by Dennis. She was quite cold towards him. And this was even when he was just a little child. So right from the beginning, he's learning from his mum that he's different and and that he's kind of repulsive in a way. What a way to make your child feel. Yeah, like... For him, for, like, for, to say, like, I'm, I can't, I'm not past the unpleasant object yeah. thing. Because that's a very, like, 
it's very specific isn't yeah it? and also what a horrible feeling of alienation and un- being rejected from a child like being noticeably treated differently or treated noticeably yeah. different sorry and and uh and not getting any love and affection from your mum because she doesn't want to she thinks you're kind of gross yeah it's so sad isn't it it really is poor, poor kid he wasn't completely alone because he loved his granddad and his granddad was a North Sea fisherman and he would take him down the beach and he'd tell him stories of what happened at sea and his granddad was the only person that he could relate to and also the only person that was tactile that would give him cuddles so he had a real connection with his granddad but in 1951 Dennis would lose the one family member that he loved his mother kind of skirted around the topic and said, yeah, your grandfather's just not very well and he'll be back. And, and then when the funeral came around and the body was laid out in, in the front room of the house, as it often is in, in these communities at this time, he, he kind of thought his grandfather was just asleep. So you've got this really traumatic event going on in in his life and he's really struggling to to make sense of what's going on and he's feeling pretty rejected really because he's got this really close relationship with his grandfather. One minute he's there and one minute he's not. I firmly hold to this view that the death of his grandfather profoundly affected him. I'm utterly convinced that his idea of death and his idea of love were fused at that point. And after that, he could only love people who were dead. Bit of a turning point there for him, wasn't it? It's also a really terrible sentence to hear, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. He could only love people who were dead. Good God. Things weren't going to get any easier for Dennis. As he got older, he realised that he was gay, but this only caused him more torment. He came from an incredibly masculine community where men were alpha males and they were tough and and they got married and they had children and and that was just what you did. So I think to come from those beginnings really did kind of shape that sense of shame he felt about his sexuality. Desperate to get out of his small village life, Dennis signed up for the army at just 15, joining the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. He served in the army for 11 years, travelling to different posts in Aden, West Germany, Norway and Cyprus. Any takers on what his job was in the army? Oh no, was he a chef? He was a cook! Oh no. Yeah, so he learned how to dismember and butcher the carcasses of animals, which was only going to serve him later on in life. I really hate the direction that this story is going in. He also developed a weird interest in oh photography oh and I, I know photography in itself isn't a weird i mean some of us photographers may be a little bit strange but <laughs> <laughs> but just generally photography isn't a weird thing is it but you're taking pictures exactly of. right so he would get soldiers that he was serving with to pretend that they were dead then he'd photograph them and keep the pictures who why why like who why did people agree to that I don't know, but I mean, I just pictured it, the scenario being like, Hey, Keith, Keith, you lay down. I've got to take a picture of you. De- pretend to be dead. Yeah, that's it. What, like this? Yeah, yeah perfect, perfect. Oh, I'm too good at that. Did I play a good dead? Was it good? Like, yeah, someone <laughs> asked you to lay down and then be dead. I'd be like, yeah, go on then. Go on then. 
yeah it, it just, i guess it depends like if you were like god damn it just go over there and pretend you're dead i'd be like yeah okay, okay. <laughs> actually i think we have done that yeah <laughs> i pretend to be dead many times pretend this alien is just ripped out of your chest okay okay <laughs> make yeah. it more gory than that hey okay, okay. your arm has fallen off you've been shot in the face ah it's a bit of drama in it this but i mean in that's odd it is odd in the context of this story for how this is about to like pan out a little bit odd by 1972 dennis had left the army and moved to london he started off working in the met police but it didn't really click with him so he ended up finding work in the civil service and like the pretty conservative little villages in aberdeenshire where he'd grown up london had an emerging lgbt community dennis dove in Head first. I think Dennis Nilsson's homosexuality is quite a significant factor when we look at his case um, because although homosexuality became legal during his lifetime, there was still quite a considerable stigma attached to it. Nilsson moves to London, a very vibrant, very busy part of the UK, and this is perhaps the place where he feels loneliest. He's a gay man, he's uh, frequenting gay bars and pubs and, and is part of that scene. Dennis mostly got involved in flings and one night stands, but in November 1975, he came across a young man getting harassed outside a bar. The man was David Gallican. Even though David was 10 years younger than Dennis, there was chemistry and they immediately clicked and it wasn't long until they moved in together. For a while, they were happy, but after a while, they ended up sleeping in separate beds, seeing other people, and ended up no more than flatmates. It devastated Dennis, who seemed desperate for a long-term relationship, and after a year and a half, Dennis asked David to leave. I think this is really significant because I think he's come to the conclusion that he quite likes having somebody else around the flat. He likes having a companion to spend time with, and... Nilsson's a bit of a narcissist, so he likes having someone around who will kind of pander to him and, and reinforce him and, and support him in that way. So what he's got now is a void. There's a gap in his life. He's had a relationship and he wants another one. But unfortunately, he's not the kind of person who can develop a relationship at a normal pace. So, so this is where we see things start to go spectacularly wrong. Lonely and desperate, Dennis's need for company would soon turn deadly. On December 29th, 1978, he met a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Holmes. Dennis knew that there was only one way to guarantee Stephen would never be able to leave him. Stephen Holmes was a very young boy and he was trying to get himself something to drink at a pub in Cricklewood. Nilsson offered to, to help out with the drink and then brought him back to his flat. Once Stephen had passed out, Dennis strangled him with a work tie and drowned him in a bucket of water. Oh, my God. Crime reporter Duncan Campbell and biographer Brian Masters thinks that this was the start of a pattern with Dennis. The modus operandi of Dennis Nilsson was very similar for most of his victims. They would be plied with drink. He would have a tie. By the time the victim was now drunk, almost comatose, going to sleep, he would put the tie round his neck and strangle him that way. And if they were unconscious but not dead, then he would drown them in a bath or a bucket. Brian Masters has got a great voice, by the way, just side note. He's just awfully posh. I think he sounds like the kind of 
Dad, you want that Christmas? Yes. Get a glass of whiskey and a mint pie. Have another drink. Have another scotch. Port. Port and cheese. Agreed. Then Dennis would start a post-murder ritual that he would continue with most of his other victims. He washed Stephen's body and propped him up in the living room. Oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. He would get them out and he would sit and watch television with them. Um, He would clean up the bodies. He would clean it, dry it, dress it, put it comfortably in a chair. He would speak to the corpse in the chair. These were his pretend friends. So what we've got going on here, there, there isn't like massive sexual depravity. What he was creating was a picture of domesticity. He would sit there and watch television with them. Um, so he's killing for, for company, but in in the most grotesque way. It's like his own life-size doll set. Like yeah. he's playing Barbie and Ken with these fucking people. That's what it and made me people. think of. Yeah. Horrible. It's, Ooh, do you reckon he spoke to them? Yeah, he said, they some... said he's speaking to them. He's watching telly with them. Oh, oh it's weird. It's sad. Yeah. Dennis put Stephen's body under the floorboards of his flat and carried on life as if nothing happened. God. Until late 1979. He then met a young exchange student from China and they went for some drinks before going home together. Once they were in his apartment, Dennis tied the young man's feet together and tried to strangle him. But he struggled and he escaped. The police questioned Dennis, but they didn't arrest him. This might have been because of the attitudes towards the LGBT community in the 70s and 80s. I mean, we've been over this before, haven't yeah. we? Like, I don't give a shit what you think about how people are living their lives. He tried to strangle him. It's just, I just can't see how you wouldn't investigate that further. No, I know. Like, but Regardless just, of who they are. We, we say that because we're good people. But it just really illustrates like the, the hierarchy of importance... Like an like a, you know their version of their ethical hierarchy. Yeah, like oh, you're gay, so you're not really worth our time. That's what it seems like. Yeah, but feels like that they're kind of sort of disgust and sort of turn their nose up at it. They don't deserve our police time. Oh, he he tied you up and tried to strangle you? Is that a gay thing? Yeah. That's probably a gay thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just just, horrible, isn't isn't it? it? Because we've we've had a few instances with this. Just that poor guy. He's like, look, this man tried to kill me and you're not doing anything about it. Yeah. How? Is that allowed? But yeah, well, I know. But if the police had done their job properly... I Over know. a dozen lives could have probably have been saved. It's sad how many times that's been a thing, isn't it? I know. It? It's yeah. infuriating. Two months after his failed attempt, Dennis was back out on the prowl. His next victim was 23-year-old Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden. After meeting in a bar, Kenneth agreed to go back to Dennis's flat for more food and drinks. Kenneth was never seen again. Now, this is chilling with Kenneth because Dennis decided to try out his old hobby from his army days and take some photos. This time, though, his subjects were no longer playing dead. Because they were actually dead? Correct. 
Six months later, Dennis killed his third victim. He strangled and drowned 16-year-old runaway Martin Duffy. Dennis kept both Kenneth's and Martin's bodies in the apartment together for as long as he could, storing them under the floorboards. Here's Duncan Campbell. He would keep them in different parts of his house or in the bath. And that's in complete contrast to the normal killer who wants to get rid of the body as quickly as possible, who doesn't want to be associated with it, who doesn't want any traces of it around. He's hoarding them. Do you think part of him is like, oh, I just like knowing they're there? Probably. Because he's a lonely guy. Yeah. And also, like his vast, you know, even from a young age, like he was cutting out pictures from books and he was, and then, you know, to, to taking pictures of people in the army playing dead, to have actual lifeless people around you is probably comforting. For three years, Dennis followed his ritual completely undetected. When the bodies under the floorboards began to rot, he would simply burn them in his back garden. DCI Peter J, a detective working on the case at the time, knows exactly how he did it. He got away with it at um, Melrose Avenue because he was disposing of the bodies in-house. And having these bonfires in the middle of the night, like funeral pyres... And on the top of those bonfires, he'd put rubber tyres to destroy the possibility of the smell of flesh. This continued at Melrose Ave until Dennis moved in 1981. He was living in a top-floor flat on Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill, North London. In May 1982, Dennis met 21-year-old Carl Stotter at a pub in London known for its drag shows. Once again... Dennis invited the young man back to his apartment for some drinks. Carl survived saying the night at Dennis's and later gave an interview of the news telling everyone what he'd gone through. He said he'd fallen asleep and woke up to find Dennis strangling him. Oh, God. Carl passed out and vaguely remembered hearing water running and feeling very cold. Dennis had dragged him to the bath and was trying to drown him. Dennis thought at first that Carl was dead. But when he came to, Dennis didn't have the urge to finish the murder. Dennis lied and said that Carl had strangled himself in his sleep by getting twisted in his sleeping bag. He then persuaded Carl to stay with him for another two days. What? I just think of something that just seems real fishy, doesn't it? Oh, it's weird that he just changed his mind. Well, it probably didn't go down the way that he expected it to, so he bottled it. So it's May 1982, Dennis has just moved flats and has just got a promotion at the civil service, but in his private social life, Dennis has been killing young men and stashing their bodies in his flat, and no one knew a thing. All the time that he's carrying out these killings, he's holding down a perfectly normal job, and occasionally he has to take a day off work to dismember the body. His colleagues at work would have no idea that Dennis Nielsen taking a day's sick leave was actually carrying out the hiding of a crime. All of us, to some extent, are two people. There's the one we display, we show to even family and friends, and there's a secret one which we only ever admit to ourselves, and we try to keep it well, well hidden. When the other self came to the fore, it took possession of him. He was possessed by this other self, and he could not prevent that other self behaving the way he wanted to. 
This new flat posed new challenges to Dennis's rituals because now he was on the top floor, he had nowhere to burn the bodies. But he did come up with a solution. He would cut up the bodies into pieces, boil them in water and then flush them down the toilet. God. Yep. That's so bad. Detective Peter Jane knows that this was no simple job. He was going to great lengths to uh, dispose of the bodies. For instance, he had a massive-sized saucepan. He could get a whole head in a saucepan, boiling it, and then breaking up the bones. And, of course, all the flesh was going down the drain, getting flushed away, never to be found again. The mess involved to do this and the effort involved to do this he would not only need some very big industrial strength utensils but also where do you put the mess well don't forget he's a chef he knows how to butcher so all he needs is a couple of knives yeah but i'm thinking in his flat where is he putting it all the kitchen knife block but a body's quite large like where are I don't know. It's, it's, I'm it's, just, this is a logistical, messy nightmare. And I just think, God, oh, man, what the lengths. So in a past life, right, where I uh, was a property manager and used to, you know, go and do inspections on people's rentals. Oh, right. Past life is in, still in this life. Still in this past, life. So I was just, know. I was thinking about two oh. centuries ago. <laughs> a past version of me. Mm. Um, and I had a group of tenants. They were students who had decided that rather than disposing of... They didn't used to like to take their garbage out. They didn't like to take their rubbish bags out. They'd wait for the cleaner who came once every two weeks to do that. Um, So when the bins were too full and the kitchen was too full of bin bags, they would flush their, like, cooking waste down the toilet. And the toilet had got so blocked, there was no water left in it. There was just all this congealed fat. And, um, what the fuck of, is wrong with kids? Like, but it had gone mouldy, oh and I have never God. in my life seen anything so disgusting uh, to the point where I like was trying to be professional, but I vomited in my mouth because <laughs> it was yeah. just it was and it smelled so bad. And they were just like, "That's the food toilet. That's the toilet where we put our food." Um, at this point, are you allowed as uh, a property manager to go? That is disgusting. Yeah. Why are you not looking after this pro- property? I did. Ha- well, I in um yes, basically to be like, stop it. Yeah. You have to stop it now. And then I was also like, I don't know who to phone to fix this. Yeah. <laughs> Their who, parents, perhaps. Yeah. Who 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 fixes? It? Like, is it a plumber's job? What do I do? Yeah. What, what do I do? Because also, if I was a plumber and I was like, I've got this like toilet that's blocked with, like just I don't even know what, but it's really mouldy. Uh, will you come and fix it, please? It'd just be like, no. Nah. nah, I mean, that's defo <laughs> a plumber's job, but they probably would be not nah, happy about it. It's not worth the money. <laughs> yeah, so like to flush an entire body, that's been boiled, so there will be like Bits. fat and like boat. Oh, I just, I, I just, the images in my head are really horrible. Mm-hmm. And I, if it's a flat, chances are he's probably only got the one toilet. So he's having yeah. to use that for his waste as well. Just think, I just, I'm oh. just picturing a small top floor London flat, and just yeah. like how that would work. Well, yeah, where, especially like depending on the type of flat it is. My yeah. friend Caroline lived in a flat where the toilet was just part of the wardrobe. Just not cool. Yeah. In February 1983, 
Residents of Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill complained about a blockage in the drains. Here we go, Danny. And so a plumber was called to investigate. And they found what looked like bits of flesh. Nilsson suggested that it could be somebody had flushed their Kentucky Fried Chicken out or something like that, and that would be the explanation for little bones and flesh. But the plumber wasn't so sure, and the following morning... He called in the police. They sent Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay to investigate. My phone rang, and it was Peter Slade, the uniform inspector in charge that particular day. And he said to me, could you possibly come up here? He said, I've got a bit of a problem. I'm not sure what I've got, but I'd like you to see it. And he showed me a a drain with an inspection plate cover open. And uh, he pointed out that uh, some bits of flesh had been hauled out of the drain at the bottom. So I said, well, let's have another haul around inside the drain, get some anything else that's in there. And the scenes of crime officer that I had with me managed to pull out three or four pieces of flesh, each about four inches long, an inch wide, and three little bones with a knuckle at each end. When I looked at them, I thought these bones had probably come from a human hand. DCIJ took the remains to Charing Cross Hospital. Resident pathologist Professor David Bowen confirmed their suspicions. The fine hairs on the piece of skin told him it was from a neck. Oh, God. He said it is, it's human. And um, he said, by pure luck, you've brought, brought me a piece of neck off the neck and your victim has been strangled. He said there's a clear ligature mark on this piece of flesh. Most of us think of hair as being hair, but different parts of the body, the hair is quite different when you look at it down the microscope. And so the pathologist in the Nielsen case was identifying that this piece of skin had hair that fitted with being from someone's neck. So despite the difficulties of fragments of tissue being found in a situation like a drain, identifying the characteristic ligature mark on it It's pointing you very strongly towards strangulation. And I looked at him and I said, you sure you've not been watching too much TV, Prof? And he said, no, it's as clear as a bell. He said, this is human. So that only meant one thing to me, that somebody must have been murdered and flushed down the toilet. There's just a lot of... going to be a lot of silence in this episode, isn't there? Because, like, that is mad also how lucky is that that it's a bit of neck and they can see it's been strangled this mad that is the universe doing some magic there like this piece of flesh that is going to be picked up by this this plumber which is then taken is going to be a piece of neck and there's going to be evidence on that tiny bit of flesh that it's neck and it's strangulation like what are the chances of them picking that specific piece of flesh out of the drain? Out of yeah, the drain. Yeah, yeah, out of yeah. All the pieces it could have been, they picked that one. It's mad, isn't it? DCI Peter would soon find out that it was more than just someone who had been murdered. He drove back to Cranley Gardens and waited outside all day until Dennis got back from work. My first introductory words to him were... I'm Detective Chief Inspector Jay from Hornsey Police Station. I've come about your drains. And he looked at me and he said, since when have police been interested in blocked drains? 
I said, well, you take me up in your flat and I'll tell you. And you could smell immediately the um, decomposing flesh. I said to him, look, your drains were blocked with human remains. And he looked at me and he said, oh my God, how awful. And I just pushed my face a little bit nearer to his and said, don't mess about, where's the rest of the body? And he said, okay, it's in plastic bags in the front bedroom. Even at that point, his demeanor didn't change at all. He was just as he was when he came in the front door. He was okay. Maybe the game's up. Um, and he was relaxed about it. Well, Dennis Nielsen, when he was found out, he was very calm and very, very cool and very collected because he was an intelligent man. He knew that, that one day he would be found out, that this would all come to light. And I think he kind of made his peace with that long before he was actually caught. He described the day of his arrest as the day help arrived. And I don't think most criminals would describe being finally stopped from their murders or whatever as the day help arrived. It's quite a statement to make, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I just don't know how to unpack this one. Yeah. I'm still, to be fair, I'm still in the drains. My mind is still with the toilet. Get Take your ketchup. Mine up the drain. I can't. DCI Peter drove Dennis to the police station, but on their way, he found out that he had not just arrested a one-time murderer, but he had a serial killer in the back of his car. So we walked him down to the car. I told him I was arresting him. So I drove the car back, and then Steve McCusker was obviously thinking to himself about all the body parts that were in so many different bags. And he popped the question to Nielsen, are we talking here about one body or two? And Nielsen said, neither. He said, I think it's 15 or 16. And I can remember the steering wheel sort of shaking in my hands. And it was just uh, the shock of, of hearing that instant response. By February 9th, 1983, Dennis Nielsen had been taken into custody. And it was around this time that author Brian Masters decided to write about the story... He wanted to be the first on the case, and he wrote to Dennis whilst in custody. Incredibly, Brian was then given permission to visit Dennis's flat. Shortly after his arrest, after I'd made connection with him, I saw the grotty kitchen, which was really ghastly, and the wardrobes, and in the wardrobes were plastic bags, or had been plastic bags. I think what I remember most was the squalid nature of the kitchen because the pots had grease around the edges and of course one now knows what that grease was it was human flesh that showed me the depths of depravity of which human beings are capable oh my god that yeah just no that's so f just no my tummy feels funny now. I feel a bit, like, rough with this. Yeah, the, just, like, just a, I'm just imagining grease. It's all a bit stomach churny. It is, it is. I really wish I'd never seen that toilet as well, because I've got, like, an added visual. Yeah. Back at the station, though police had evidence Dennis had killed someone, unless they could pin something specific on him, according to the law, Dennis could be let go. All they know is that he flushed well, body parts from his drain... Yeah, but where did he get them? Yeah, but surely, why is it not? Why there's is, there's not like disturbing a body? There's that. That's a thing. That's a that's a charge. 
disturbance of a dead body. But it might not have been him. Someone else could have been in his flat. Somebody else went into his flat, boiled bodies, cut them up, put them down his toilet and then bagged them up and left them in his wardrobe and he didn't notice. He didn't know. Without his knowledge. Even his knowledge. What? Well, he could have had a flatmate. Yeah, but he didn't. Yeah, I know. But I know what they're saying. No, it's a stretch. I'm not having it. I won't hear of it. I mean, I I will hear of it. I want to hear what happens next, please. (laughs) We had a murderer in custody. Serial killer. We didn't know who he'd killed. We hadn't got a clue. And we weren't going to find out unless we got the truth out of him. We knew that the clock was ticking and that we had to charge him within 48 hours. Luckily, the forensics team searching Dennis's flat had taken fingerprints from one of the victim's hands. It belonged to his last victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Stephen hadn't been seen since January 26th. Dennis was charged with his murder on February 11th, 1983. The police began to interrogate Dennis and, to their surprise, he spoke freely, confessing his crimes one after the other. He gave us a very, very brief description in, a, in an hour or so of, of what had happened. We had told him that we were going to go through one victim at a time, one victim per interview, because we knew it was going to take at least two hours per victim because we had to get everything possible from him so that we could identify the bodies or identify the victims. A lot of them we didn't have bodies for. So he was able to tell us nicknames. Uh, Occasionally he would give us a name. Dennis said that he'd kept the body of his first victim, Stephen Holmes, under the floorboards for eight months before it began to decay. Why? How? There's so many questions. This is just so... This is really horrible. This is so grisly. There are some people out there that do not mind, like, stench. You know, the people that, like, hoard or don't clean and they just let their dirt and filth just build up around them and they just... It doesn't faze them. You know, like, classic Kim and Aggie and and all that programme where they go in and clean people's houses and they come in and be like, oh, the smell in here is putrid. I guess... You get nose blind to it. Under the floor, like perhaps if he sealed it up really well, could it be airtight? Would a perhaps. body would a body decompose if I there was still no smell air? It though, I know if it was like lingering, if it was, if it was airtight. Yeah, but it's not going to be airtight if not, it's flo- there's floorboards. No way it is, is it? And even with a carpet, that's porous, isn't it? Obviously, it didn't bother him that much. Oh God. He then cut Stephen's body into pieces and constructed a makeshift bonfire in the back garden. There he burnt the remains of the young boy. He confessed to killing at least a dozen other men, Billy Sutherland in 1980, 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow in September 1981, but relying on the killer's memory of events made the investigation very difficult. Nielsen would tell us that he had murdered a young man of about 20 years old who had a tattoo round his neck and he'd strangled him and he'd give us a full detailed account of how it all happened. But we had absolutely no idea at all as to who he was talking about. You can't really charge a prisoner with killing a person unknown. We had to be absolutely sure that when we named a victim, 
it couldn't possibly be anybody else. That was a mammoth undertaking. Most often it turned out that Dennis didn't remember much about his victims at all, not even their names. When he was telling the police, confessing, some of them he identified by strange memories. One he described as a skinhead that he met uh, in the West End. Another was a young man from Northern Ireland. The omelette boy. This is the man who he cooked an omelette for before he killed him. That's so insulting. Like, you just at least learn their name. You're going to take their lives. At least learn their names. I mean, like how he just cares so little about them, but he obviously wants the companionship of just having their lifeless body around. Yeah. Ugh. The omelette boy was 27-year-old Graham Allen, and and like many of Dennis's other victims, Allen was a married man with a family. His son Shane Levine remembers the day his father went missing. I was only seven years old. My father was a drug addict. He wanted money for drugs, and there was a bit of a fight, a bit of an altercation, and my father was screaming for money through the window. My mother said no, and... My mother's last words was to tell him to never come back again. And he left that night and he never came back. My mother, she was sure that something had happened. It was quite a violent relationship. And they would often split up or have arguments. He would disappear, but he would always make contact. And this had gone on for weeks, months, there was no contact. And my mother thought the worst at that moment. Sad. It is sad. That's really sad that that's like his last memory of his dad. Graham had met Dennis Nilsson trying to get a cab on Shaftesbury Avenue in London. Dennis invited him home and cooked Graham an omelette before strangling him from behind as he ate. Parts of Graham's body were recovered from Dennis's drains. Dennis eventually confessed to 15 murders in all, 12 at his first home in Melrose Avenue and three in his flat in Cranley Gardens. But even the number Dennis gave was in question since he couldn't quite piece them all together. Dennis Nilsson's trial date was set for October and so they set about the really difficult task of getting all the evidence together. But soon they had a new problem. Dennis's defence team were going to plead insanity. But, luckily for the prosecution, because of all the media coverage, three young men, Douglas Stewart, Paul Nobbs and Carl Stotter, had bravely come forward to say they had been attacked by Dennis. And so gathering evidence from the crime scenes in both flats, police were able to bring charges against Dennis for six of the murders. The trial began at the Old Bailey on October 24th, 1983. Brian Masters, the writer who had been corresponding with Dennis, remembers what he was like during the trial. I went to see him every day during the trial in the cells underneath the old bailey. And the one thing which struck me most about him was this disorder, this imbalance. That he had no idea that what he'd done was important. He knew, of course, that it was wrong to kill people, but he didn't know why it mattered so much. Why did people make a fuss about it? The three witnesses gave their chilling statements. Carl explained how Dennis eventually let him go after trying to drown him and keeping him in the apartment for three days. But even after the statements and Dennis's lengthy confessions, the defence team decided to plead not guilty to all the charges against him. The defence wanted to plead guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility when we got to the Old Bailey. Uh, but we weren't happy about that at all because we had tried to find 
some sort of personality disorder. We had a psychiatrist from King's College in London look at him in depth. And he said he couldn't find any evidence of a personality disorder at all. Forensic psychologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley said there were psychiatrists on both sides who gave their opinions on Dennis's state of mind. Well, when we look at insanity pleas, essentially we're looking at how much control that person had over their behaviour. Now, when you look at some of Nielsen's behaviour, you would think, you know, automatically, well, this is the behaviour of somebody who isn't normal. It's, it's somebody who is a little bit mad. But actually, he knew what he was doing. Here was somebody who was not labouring under some kind of psychosis. He was intelligent. He was articulate. He wrote reams and reams of pages about his crimes. So, so he was very much conscious of what was going on. The court also had extracts from the extensive interviews conducted by police with Dennis and testimony from the survivors. It was left to the jury to decide whether or not he had the capability to form an intention to kill. And he was found guilty of murder on all counts. When the jury came back into the box and the foreman of the jury stood up to give his verdict, um, there was a feeling in the courtroom that that goodness, that's over. We, we can go home and be cleansed now. We've listened to so much squalid evidence that we feel contaminated slightly. So everybody wanted to go home and wash. On the 4th of November 1983, Sir David Croom Johnson sentenced Dennis Nilsson to life imprisonment. He would have to serve at least 25 years before he would could be considered for parole. But in 1989, it was decided that Dennis's sentence would be a whole life tariff, meaning he would never be released. He knew perfectly well he would be found guilty, and he knew he deserved it. He knew he should be. I think he was secretly relieved that he didn't have to make decisions anymore. All the decisions he'd made in the last few years were wrong. Now in prison, decisions would be made for him. On September 13, 2018, after almost 45 years in prison, Dennis Nilsson died of a blood clot behind bars. Justice had finally been served for the family members of Dennis's victims. But decades later, it's still chilling to think that Dennis killed so many for so long without anyone knowing a thing. And if he could, he would just continue to do so. I think what's probably terrifying about this case is the fact that Nielsen was so ordinary. You begin to think to yourself, how many more of them are there around? How many more Dennis Nielsens are there around who are disposing of the bodies of their victims, never to be found again? Dennis targeted vulnerable young men, and so tragically, they slipped from the world almost unnoticed. But for the people left behind, why Dennis chose to steal 15 lives will still be a mystery. He was just very, very different. I've never met anybody like him before in my life. I couldn't really get to understand him. I mean, you deal with people as, as police officers and you, you in, mentally you stick them in the um, evil box or the sort of cry for help box. There's always a box you can stick them in, in in your own mind. You you make up your own mind about people when you deal with them in the police. But Nielsen, I never got to the bottom of. I couldn't understand at all. 
And that was the case of Dennis Nilsson. That was wild. That was a lot, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well done, everyone, for getting through. If you if you managed to get through without vomiting, or at least nearly, well done. I'm glad. All right, I already did my sick for the day. Yeah, yeah. I did get a pang. It was the grease bit. Yeah. I feel like that's one, you know, when you're just sort of like half asleep, it's the middle of the night and it's just going to pop in your head, that grease everywhere. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. I just think with this one, like, all I can think of is is just why? Well, yeah. Nobody knows. Where did it start? Why did he just start doing that? Like, he, he seemed to have a somewhat promising future ahead of him with, like, the army and all that. But it's just these really interesting personality, just, you know, like like the, the fascination with taking pictures of things that are dead and the picture thing in the book, dead. And then, oh, I'm going to move to London and then just start killing people and burning yeah. their and keeping their bodies. Just It just kind of feels like we're reading a book which has got loads of pages ripped out. It just sort of seems a bit disjointed. He seems a bit disjointed. Well, you would have to be pretty disjointed to do that. But yeah, that was that. It is. It's pretty sick and gross. And anything to do with like boiling flesh is never nice. I oh, well, when you first start, when we first started, I thought you were going to say we were going to go down the route that he was eating it. So uh, at least we were saved from that. Yeah. You know, my partner's a plumber, and I'm going to tell him this story. Because, you know, he's dealt with many a block drains. Ask him later what the what is the most interesting thing he's pulled out of a block drain. Um, My friend, her, her fiancé, he's the drain man. Oh. He does drains. So he is the he's drain man. He's found things in drains. Wow. Yeah. Clowns? Yeah. <laughs> and then they tried to steal his arms. <laughs> that was an it reference yeah. for everybody there. Oh. Lovely. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're taking a look at the killer obsessed with Breaking Bad, Stefano Brizzi. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.